I'm Drew Barrios. This podcast is conversations with people about what it is to be a brown person in this city and our different narratives. What do I mean by brown? A person who is Latina, Latino, Latinx, Mexican, Central American, South American, Afro-Latino, or anyone who identifies as one. I'll also be including black, indigenous people of color from time to time. Fair warning, there's adult language and social injustice situations in this podcast. Now, I made this for everybody, from the brown folk who still don't know what an Afro-Latino is, to the white folk who don't know the difference between a salvi and a chapin. And if you don't know those words, you should definitely listen. This is Being Brown in L.A. Welcome back, guys. This is Drew again at uh, Being Brown in L.A. And my guest today is Ibarionix Bereyo, who is educator, photographer, podcaster. What 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 other thing you don't do? Man, it depends on the day. <laughs> so I guess nowadays... Always got a hustle going on. If you are an artist these days, you pretty much have to multitask or multi be multifaceted of like everything that you can do you have to be able to do this and you're going to be able to do that um and i feel like i learned that at art center um was like if someone called me and said do you shoot food i said yes and then yes. the next day someone's <laughs> like do you shoot fashion and i you know would pause for a second and i'd be like oh of course you know so it's like and none of those i feel like were anything that I really pursued, but it was fun to do, which is ironic because now I do a lot of like, I've been getting a lot of gigs doing stuff with fashion people and with products. So, you know, it, it just happens. People just, you know, after a while, you just say yes to whatever comes your way. Um, tell us about yourself. Tell us what you do, where you're from. Give us a little bit of story about you, about your next. Okay. Um... I was born in New York. My parents were uh, both Dominican, and they were part of the big uh, Dominican migration that happened during the 50s. And they met there, got married, had me and my brother, and then we moved to Los Angeles. So for most of my life, I grew up in L.A. And um, when I was around 10 years old, I was a member of the Boys uh, Club of Hollywood. And one of the members there introduced me to photography. He fixed up an old darkroom that had been used in a while, and uh, you know that for for a lot of generations who who came up on film, the, that magic moment when the picture appears on that blank piece of paper in the developing tray was, was all that it took. And I was just fascinated with photography. And uh, when I was at LACC, uh, I always took pictures, but at LACC I joined the the newspaper. And it was the first time I ever had, uh, I was doing something, both writing and being a photographer, that not only that I was good at, but that allowed me to collaborate with others. Because before, I, I, I really kind of just isolated. I wasn't good at sports, I stuttered. Um, I felt always felt awkward, I always felt like the other, and never felt like I had a group or a community to be part of. And uh, once I joined the newspaper, it just all of a sudden I felt like I had a real voice. And I graduated there and I went to Berkeley 
and I got a degree in English Lit, but while there I was still practicing photography for a good, good amount. But I was never a, a great planner. I had intended to go to graduate school in Missouri, but I, I wanted to take a year off. And then I came back and ended up working at Nikon and never went back to, to finish my degree. But I worked at Nikon for about eight years as a technical uh, support advisor. Then I left there and started working for the magazines, the Outdoor Photographer, um, the Digital Photo Pro, and I was there for another eight years, um, writing articles, editing articles by other photographers, testing and evaluating gear. And uh, then I left just soon after I'd started the podcast and I just started freelancing. I was doing a lot of uh, freelance writing, writing books on photography. To date, I've written, I think, five or six books, maybe five and a half books. So we can photography. add author to, to that yeah. list of, of hats you wear. And hundreds, <laughs> of, hundreds of magazine articles for a bunch of different publications. We met when I was an adjunct at uh, Art Center, um, okay. where I taught Are you for still a there? number of years. No. No, I'm not teaching there anymore. I, I left to do some work on um, a, a NPR show called Bullseye uh, with Jesse Thorne. I was there for, for about a year. Um, I really wanted to have a chance. After so many years doing podcasting, I was really interested to, to get behind the scenes of a pro professionally produced uh, radio show. And they had an opportunity for a year to be a fellow. So I said... I applied for it and I got it, and that was an amazing year. Um, yeah, I really got really immersed in, in in radio and podcast production to a way to a level that I never would have had would have had had I just been doing it on my own. I, like you, you know, I just figured things out when it came to podcasting. Yeah, but there it was just like you had to edit edit a show to NPR standards, which was really interesting. And currently, I work at the, the Huntington Library as a, as a photographer, a special project photographer. I've been there for a little more than a year and a half uh, to photograph a lot of uh, materials that are in the collection. And as a result of COVID, COVID I pitched and they agreed to have me uh, do a documentary project on how the, the, the library and the, and the grounds are handling COVID. So I've been working on that since February or March. Oh, that's very interesting. That's amazing. Um, you know, I, I uh, remember your class vividly because um, during your class is when things sort of started changing for me. Um, I remember that, you know, a photographer came to visit through another professor um, and uh, I sort of had an encounter with him and met him and then he wanted me to work with him. And I remember I was taking your class, uh, working photographer. The fact that you were telling us about your podcast and all these other things that you're working on stuck in my head years after that. Because I was thinking like, you know, this guy, he just did all this other stuff, you know? He wasn't just a photographer. He like did all these other things. And it's like, mm -hmm. there's nothing stopping photographers because, you know, photography is the thing that we love or maybe the thing we do for a living, but it's not our all. And as a photographer, right. you are exposing yourself in different places. Product photography, for example, you know, gadgets and toys and whatever. And that sort of like 
you know, there's so many levels of interest that come through photography, not just like that one thing. If you just do photography of one kind and then you go home and you're okay, that kind of seems like a dull life. But I remember finding notes and that sort of sprung a little bit of like a thing in my head where I was like, I should do a podcast one day. And it was just from reading something that you had、mm. told us because I had these little books. And whenever somebody would critique a work that I did at Arts Center, I would just write things down. You talking about us, about it to us in class came to mind.、Mm -hmm. And I was like, ah, he was right all this time. <laughs> It's like when your parents tell you something, you should do that. And you're like, nah, I don't like that. That's dumb. And then、yeah. you end up doing it. Years after they said it, you go, oh, you they were right. They didn't know what they were talking、yeah. about.、Um, but. <laughs> It's fun. It's funny that you know, you're, you're, you have all these many hats.、Um, did, did you think that photography was going to lead you to all these things? I had no idea what was going to happen. You know, I just know I like doing it. And so I, 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 I never really planned anything. It just seems like things just came my way. And I was lucky enough not to get in my way and be able to take advantage、yeah. of it. You know, and you know, there were a lot of stuff that, that you know, fell through the cracks just because I was young and dumb. You know, that probably would have been even better opportunities. But for the most part,、um, I just got a chance to work here, work there, and, and I would get it. And then I would just I would have to learn everything. And that was really、uh, good because you know, when I was working at Nikon or I was working at the magazines when I started podcasting, I really didn't know anything about. Any of those things. I knew what I knew about photography, but each of those jobs required me to have to learn a hell of a lot. And just because I was eager to learn,、um, I found ways of being able to sort of figure stuff out. And I think it, it's a good thing that a lot of that stuff was sort of hands on. Because I, I have ADHD, which I didn't know at the time. I just got diagnosed with it about two years ago. And.、Um, But there was something about the, the, the hands on that provided, and the fact that it was photography related, that allowed me to sort of pick up on things fairly quickly and be able to run with it and,、uh, and be able to do well with them. So by the time I left Nikon and the time I left the magazine and now with the podcasting, I've gotten pretty, really well adept at it. You know? No, I mean, if it had been anything else, I don't know if I would have been.、Um, As successful with it as I've been with this. As a, you know, Afro Latino, Latino, you know, what did your parents think about you saying, hey, I want to be a photographer? Because, you know, in our culture, it's not like a thing where they're、oh, like, was... how do you make money off of that? You know, I never really said that because growing up, I really didn't know what I was going to be. In high school, I was in the theater department in acting. And I, I was giving thoughts to be an actor. And I think my dad, he was kind of, you know, you know, made that comment about that. But by the time I started thinking about being a photographer, was when LACC,、uh, when I was in college. And even then, it was still formulating. But, you know, my dad, you know,、um, he, he was an immigrant, he was a printer, he was a pressman.、Um, So, I'm sure that if he had had that conversation, it would have been about having a practical job because that's all he kind of understood. You know, that's what he, that's what he had come from.、Um, you know, and a lot of people who are, you know, first generation usually have those conversations if, if their parents 
um, you know, are, are the initial immigrant and you are trying to do something that's sort of outside of their experience, they have a hard time understanding how you could make a living at being a, a painter or an actor or a photographer. Their their image of what that is is pretty finite. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, you would have a studio or you would do a wedding photographer or something yeah. like that. Being a being an artist, that that's something that they you know, they wouldn't really recognize as possible until you actually yeah. did it. And then oh, they'd okay. go, okay, I'm glad that you did that. Yeah. <laughs> My mom was like, you know, like, how do you yeah. make money after that? Like, do you take pictures all the time or like how are magazines gonna pay you a lot? And you know, this was the time that the recession was starting where I was like, there's going to be not a lot of money for magazines. They're not going to be like throwing money at me for stuff. Um, I don't think, I don't think uh, I was able, you know, if I, I think the one moment that I was able to sort of give something to my parents where I felt like I had, I had proved that I'd done okay. was not, was with my first book. Hmm. You know, when I when I had that first book and I could take them, give that to them, because when I was writing for the magazines there, I could show them what I was doing. You know, you I'd get a little yeah. byline and stuff in the magazine. But I think it was just the fact that I'd made a book. I think that they could, they could. It was really tangible. Get. It was... But you know, yeah. that was tangible. So I felt really proud about the fact that saying, hey, you know, my name's on the is on the cover. My picture's on the cover. I wrote all of this. How is it for? How was it for you? especially at the time that you were coming up to be a, a Latino photographer and, you know, to top it off, also the distinction of Afro-Latino. Oh, that was, that goes all the way back to the beginning, man. This is, the, I have my first memories of that are in elementary school. I went to school in South LA and um, we were living there as the community was transitioning from a mostly white community, like during the 40s and 50s, there were still some of those legacy uh, people still there, but largely it was made up of African Americans and Latinos, mostly, I think, from uh, Mexico. Um, it's changed more and more. It's more Central American now than it was back when I was growing up. But besides my immediate family, like my cousins and my uncles and aunts, um, there, I, I wasn't seeing any Afro-Latinos. Me and my brothers were probably the only Afro-Latinos in that school. And uh, I remember when we had to fill out applications and stuff, you know, I didn't know what to put down because they had either white, black, yeah. or Mexican or something like that. And I'd have to put other. And it was always very confusing because I, I culturally, I didn't identify with being black, even though people would look at me as black. And then when they hear me talk Spanish, they would look at me oddly. Yeah. You know, going, why are you speaking yeah. Spanish? And all the things that I grew in my, my, my Dominicanness happened when at home or when I was visiting my aunts or my uncles. And outside of that, there was no way of being able to, I wasn't seeing myself in any place other yeah. than that. And I was a kid of the 70s, so um, I would sit, definitely wasn't seeing myself on TV or or magazines or books or anything like that. So I I, I became very self-conscious of the fact that I was, uh, was very different. And, you know, on top of the fact that I stuttered, you know, that I had a learning learning disability um and just was socially awkward it just led to me to being really uh isolating so 
I found myself a lot just, um, I think around junior high school or or high school, I started making friends on the on the west side. And uh, that's when I just started learning how to code switch. You know, I was able to negotiate both worlds. And, and, I, and I found just myself learning to be whatever I felt I needed to to fit to fit in. Right. Um, you know, I could, I could fit in in the hood. And then if I went, I was going to Beverly Hills and, and, and Malibu and hanging out with friends there and staying overnight, I could fit in, fit in there. Um, so when I got into college, that's pretty much what I was, I was doing. I, I never really sort of identified with, with my culture outside of the you know, connections with my family. Um, yeah, if I had grown up in New York or Miami, at least when I visited there, uh, it was amazing to walk the streets, especially in Washington Heights. And I'd be hearing all the music I'd grown up on the streets. I'd be hearing all these people talking in that Dominican, that fast sort of rhythmic Dominican accent all the time. The food, all of it was there. And that's not something that I experienced in LA very much at all. So it, was, it wasn't that I was keeping it a secret. I just didn't. I guess part of it is I didn't want to have to keep explaining myself. I, and people. I think, I mean, my name is Ivario <laughs> Nex, so I think it know. happens a lot for, for <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know, BIPOC people, but also because you know we're on the West Coast. Yeah, yeah, because like for me with my name Ivario Nex, and it's it's a, it's the derivative of a, a Taino Taino Indian name. There's a more common derivation, especially out of Puerto Rico, Guarionex, G-U-A-R-I-O-N-E-X. Uh, but there's a, a poet um, that my mother uh, liked, and he had a character called Ivarionex, or she named me after the character. So my name was often the issue when I would meet people. And so for a good part of my life, I, people would make up names for me. You know, They'll say, oh, I'm going to call you this, I'm going to call you that. To make things easier, because I didn't have any sort of sense of self-confidence, I would I would adopt whatever name they wanted to use. Like some people use my middle name, which is Rafael, or, you know, and things like that. And depending on the time of my life, if someone calls me by a certain name, I know what period of my life they're from. Right? But it wasn't until I was in college that I was finally no Ivario Nex is my name, and that's that's what I'm gonna that's what I'm gonna go by, and I'm gonna insist that people use that and not give me a nickname. Um, I, I've gotten pretty um, firm about about that, especially when I meet new people and they immediately want to impose some sort of name on it to make it easier for yeah. themselves. It's like, no, no, that's my name. Exactly. Yeah, I have a friend. Use it. And her name's Marina, and people would always try to anglonize her name and change it up, and and then and she's like, no, 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 my name is Marina. That's what my name is. And yeah. I, I, when she, when I heard her say that, I was like, <laughs> I thought it was the dopest thing ever. I was like, that's fucking dope, because you can say, you can yeah. tell people like, no, 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 this is what my name is. And if it's hard for you, like, pronounce it. I'll, I'll tell you once. After that, you just gotta kind of figure it out, you know. Yeah, I heard someone else who had that similar experience a couple of years ago, and they said, you know, I'm not your property. You don't get to, you don't get to mm -hmm. name me. And I was like. Yeah, 
Yeah. And it's it's sort of the thing. It's like people are like, well, why don't you, you know, like I remember being a kid and they're like, why don't you change it so they could, they could fit into this? And I was like, you live in Los Angeles. You know, that was a Spanish city. You live on these streets, La Cienega yeah. and all this stuff. Like, that's a Spanish word. Like, you got to get used to it. Like, this is where you're at. You know, you're living in a, in a country where, like, a lot of places have Spanish names, you know? And, and it's like, why is it yeah. that you're not comfortable learning a language that's based on a lot of the things that are here? You know, if you go to Louisiana, there's a, parts of it that were all Spanish colonies. And they have Spanish names. And people are just still like... I don't understand their last names or how to say it. I'm like, you live in places that are like basically Spanish named. Oh, I always, I always forget who told me this story. And I love the story and I wish I could give it credit. But um, there was a person who said they went to at a work at a company and there was this white guy that um, um, would uh, purposely try to mispronounce that person's name. And the way that person got back to him is just started calling like, hey, Biff, hey, Chuck, <laughs> you know, using all these these stereotypes, yeah. white stereotypes, every time he saw them. And finally, the guy just had enough. He said, OK, OK, I get it. I get it. And I said, oh, man, if I ever have a chance yeah, to that's use a great that, tool. I will. Because uh, that really, it, really, it really is ultimately about respect. You know, and I found that you know? I also found that that sometimes even among other Latinos, like especially uh, my Mexican friends, like uh, there was that whole thing of like not understanding, having to explain things to them and like, you know, having to say like, well, every, if you're from Guatemala, that means you're like a Salvadorian and you guys are all the same. And I was like, no, man, there's way more uh, differences. You know, there's central america alone has countries that are completely different in itself and then we also have people from the islands and like oh they're all like puerto rican right and i was like no that's another thing too no. like puerto ricans <laughs> are not like cubans or like people from dominican republic like the dm is completely different than everything else you know we have similarities yeah. we like you know we like pork and pork goodness and stuff like that and lechon and all that but our foods are not you can't try to classify everybody by our foods or by our like likes or because we're from a certain region we're all the same thing you know and i had to explain to them i was like are you the same as people from colima and then they got all like tense and like yeah no, i'm not from there I'm, I'm not from colima i'm not i'm not from you know guadalajara and i'm like all right chill and that's exactly what i'm just trying to say we're all we all have our own identity. yeah that is so funny especially in la because you got so many different yeah different latinos in LA that it's amazing you know maybe in Missouri yeah I'd expect that but it was you know? weird growing up as but a kid here. like I, I you know I, I try to figure it out and I, you know that, that when you brought up code switching it was like it just took me back to being you know in high school and having to figure out how to navigate in the Americanized white world when I was working at you know in the west yeah. side and, you know, some people were curious of who I am and they would ask. Other people just were like so surprised. I mean, I, like I said before in the podcast, I, I had somebody tell me like, oh, my God, you speak English really well. Where were you born? Oh <laughs> and I had to God. tell them. I was like, yeah, I was born in Westwood. Like, you know, it's like it's sick insane of how we have to sort of, you know, because in a way I didn't even recognize myself as afro-latino until a few years ago like i still didn't know where i fit in so mm -hmm. i was just proud of who i was like as a multi-cultural mixed-race person 
and I would just say that, but like, you know, I, I got this from a woman and she told me the only thing that's mixed are animals. People are not mixed, you know, like you're not a mixed you know you're not like an animal so that's right yeah true. and so i was like oh okay so you know i was just okay i'm multicultural and i'll take that but you know when they when everybody just started to decide like enough is enough this is who i am you know and the moniker of like afro latino started coming in and i started reading a lot of articles about it i was like yeah this is who i am and i have a right to decide like i can be this you know yeah and that's it and so it's very interesting when yeah. you brought it up because obviously it was happening to you a decade before it happened to me, you know, in the 80s where I was like, ah, what, who am I? You know, and I was little, but I was a 90s kid, you know, and I didn't know how to navigate with that. And, you know, everybody was just trying to figure out what to call you. And they were just trying to give you a, a moniker or, or like a tag, you know, that that's who you are. That's yeah. When it came to being in the professional world, for me, it was it was um feeling like I always had to prove myself up front. Um, one of the earliest experiences I had when I was working at the magazines, I was, we went to one of these big conferences, I think PMA, Photographic Marketing Association, they used to have these big events in Vegas where they would you know, announce all these big photographic products. And I had made an appointment with someone uh, to find out about the product that was part of the thing. You'd walk around this big trade floor, find out about the new products, and possibly write about it in the magazine. And I had made an appointment. And one of the guys in the advertising department wanted to come with me, um, I guess because he wanted to see whether he could drum up some business. And he was this tall, white dude, six foot, you know, dark hair. And I go, go to my, my appointment, and almost immediately this guy starts talking to him, right? Rather than me. And immediately I just start like, you know, peppering him with questions about the product to make him realize, no, you're supposed to be talking to me, right? Not him. I'm the guy. You know, he's, he's, he's yeah. with me, <laughs> yeah. right? And I found myself that always at, at, at meetings when I was meeting with different manufacturers or, you know, because I would be the only brown person in, in the room and... You know, and maybe part of it was just being self-conscious, or just because I just wanted to, to, to um, establish my the, the fact that I, I I had a right to the seat. Yeah. Right. You know, I would I would ask questions that let them know that I knew what yeah. I was talking about. Which is, and I think that's something that I've I, I always did. I don't do it so much now, um, but back when I was coming up. You know, as a photographer and, you know, as a writer and editor, I always felt like I needed to establish that. I didn't want someone to dismiss me because they would look at me and make some sort of assumption. Which, you know, you get tired of doing that. Yeah, it's like uh, it's holding exhausting. a, you know, holding a sign with your resume as you walk through, you know, corporate America to try to, like, convince people. Like, okay, this is, before you look at the skin... This is who I am. And I feel like a lot of other, mm -hmm. some of my friends, because like I may, I, you know, I have friends who are from every culture. And one of the reasons why I made this podcast is because I want my friends who are not Latino to hear this and understand what we go through. But they don't have to put up their validation up front, you know, because people don't know where to see them from, you know. And I think a lot of times, right. you know, when I tell people I went to Art Center, it's like this whole thing like, oh, you went to Art Center? Like, surprised, you know? It's like, 
Yes, I know where it's yeah. at. And I actually attended there and graduated. And so it was one of those things where it's like, where other people would be like, oh, you're this. Oh, that's cool. And then when I said, oh, yeah, I'm a photographer. And they're like, oh, where'd you go to school? Like I had to validate where my education came from. And then when I said it, they were so surprised by it. Like, oh, you went to art center. So mm. you are like a real photographer, <laughs> which is like, okay, <laughs> never mind that, I, you know, that I actually made a living off of it. But yes, okay. Um, how is it then in the educational sector when you went and started teaching? Like, how, you know, because sometimes I felt like at Art Center, um, there was a lot of times where I felt microaggressions by people because of the color of my skin. And mm -hmm. I also remember, I don't remember there being a lot of black people at Art Center when I attended. I remember there was like two and I knew both of them. And then, yeah, <laughs> because it was just two of them. So, like, I, I made it a, a point yeah. to, like, just say hi. But the first time I said hi to one of them, he kind of, like, skated off because he was like, no, can, they can't see us together. You know, like, he just kind of took off. <laughs> um, but then as, you know, as I left, you know, there was a huge Asian population and there was more black people that were going into art center, but it was really scarce. It was like, there wasn't that many Latinos and there wasn't that yeah. many. Latinos. How was it when you were teaching in that world? Well, you know, I was an adjunct, so I was kind of in and out just for that particular class. So I knew Everard, you know, and I knew Dennis and that was, and I knew some of the other teachers. So I, I never got involved in terms of the, you know, inner mechanics of the school. Um, at all, though I would hear things like a, 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 some of the things that you had mentioned from some of the students of, of color there, feeling that, um, you know, feeling those issues where they didn't feel like they were being uh, represented or completely supported in ways that they felt like they needed to. But I definitely related to that because every 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 institution or organization that I've ever been in, you know, I'm usually the only one or the only two or three in the in, in the building, you know, much less the room. So it was, you know, when, when, when you're in the, when you're coming as a person of color, there's a, and I hope it's a little different now for people in, in generations younger than me, but you're, you're always scanning. You're always, you know, every time you're, you're in a room, especially with new people, you're just trying to get the feel yeah. of the room in terms of how other people are and how, and how whether or not you're going to have to deal with any BS or not. You know, I've been privileged to be oh, allowed in some rooms where I didn't think I had a chance to be in, but then I always feel like I either had to defend my position there or uh, always educate people with misconceptions. And so I feel like the class that I went into Art Center, there was more than just me as Latinos, but as far as Afro-Latinos are black, there was none. And, and then black, there was other people in other departments. But I felt kind of sometimes like it was rare. And I used to shave my head back in the day. And it got, yeah. it, it made people sort of standoffish to who I was and surprised them every single time I opened my mouth. And I just felt like it was like a task that I had to do to make them feel comfortable. Yeah with my presence or who I was. The school wasn't very supportive as a Latino student. Sometimes I would get second guess, like, oh, you, oh, should you take that many classes? Can you handle that many classes? And I was like, oh mm. man, like, I, well, first of all, you're not paying for them. So, cause nothing's free at this school. Uh, second of all, 
Right. You know, like, y- you don't know the threshold that I can handle. And, you know, I'm not here to mess around. <laughs> you Obviously, I'm going to school with a bunch of rich kids who, you know, who have the ability to, like, take some time off and, you know, they still have a way to pay for it. I didn't. I was on scholarship and loan, so I, I had to figure out how to make it happen without spending, you know, five years like some people that I knew there. I needed to get out and get my degree and move on and work, you know? So it was a bit it was a bit weird. I had, you know, teachers sometimes second guess that I can make things happen, you know? And I don't I didn't I never saw that coming from other students, you know. So Art Center was was definitely yeah. a a wake up call for what I think is also prevalent in the art world, you know? You know, it's always especially when you're young, it's really important to feel like you have someone not, to, not necessarily has your back, but, but understands where you're coming from, you know? And, and when you're lacking a diversity of staff and administrators that you can walk into and you don't have to explain yourself to and they get it, that provides you a lot of, uh, a lot of security that you need, especially during a challenging time like that. I know that when I was going to Berkeley, there was always a high percentage of, uh, of African-American students that wouldn't make it through the school year. And I always believed that it wasn't so much that they weren't capable of doing it, as I just don't think they had the sort of the emotional and sort of spiritual support that they needed to get through, because the, the, the challenges weren't so much about, I think, the classwork as it was everything else, you know? And when you're going in a school like Art Center or any sort of art school where the competition is really fierce and that you're one of the only few people of color there, um, and, and more than likely, you know, the first generation in your family to have ever been to a, you know, a college, uh, there's a lot of underlying stuff that's happening. And, you know, you're likely not going to have that conversation with a peer, you know, because you're both trying to figure it out. That other person is not going to have the answer. And to look around you at the institution and feel like, well, where do I go to? And you kind of become self-reliant. I mean, that's that's what got me through college. I remember when I went to my first semester at, at Cal. And I went to the, the counselor to go over my classes, you know, to make sure that I made the right choices for my classes for the first semester. And I was going with him to help. And he said, you know, you should be able to figure this out. And I was like, and I was so put off, and I never went back there. And I remember every, every, every semester, I'd be in my room with the catalog, tr- making sure that the classes that I was taking um, provided me uh, everything that I needed in order to get my degree. And when I think back at that, I think that was that that was that motherfucker's job. Yeah, that was his only job to yeah. help me. That was his yeah. only job. And for him to sort of dismiss me like that, I don't know what that was about. I know yeah. that it was bullshit, you know. But I, I I, was able to say, well, I've made it here. You know, I've gone through a lot to get, to get there. I want to stay here. So I'm going to figure it out. And, you know, I remember just always being there for hours trying to figure it out, you know. Figuring out, okay, does this take care of this requirement? And, you know, with a college, things can change. Right, all of a sudden requirements can change and all that stuff, and I was always terrified that some at some point I would think that I had enough to graduate and I didn't, you know, and and I think there are, I'm sure that there were probably some students who who had that same guy who told them the same thing, 
Uh, and I, I can't say where there was a color thing, but I, I, I doubt seriously that he would have said that to someone with, you know, blonde hair and yeah, blue eyes. Definitely. No, I mean, I, I, I like that school just because I feel like I got all that I could out of it, but I made it a, my mission to sort of put myself in places where. Yeah, that's it. You made, you yeah, made the choice. I'm like, I'm going to do what I got to do. Yeah. And if someone says mm-hmm. no, then I'm just going to do it anyways. And the funny thing is I came back with the grades exactly. from that you know, six class term. And I said, look, here you go. The less, the lowest grade I got was B's. And I was like, I guess I could handle it. And I, you know, it was kind of like a, I didn't want to, I mean, I was, I, you know, I'm a smart ass, but I also wanted to show him like, you know, this is what you need to do. This is your job to like support and say, Hey, I'm going to help you out. But I noticed that, that, you know, nowadays there's, there's this reckoning happening at art center where, you know, BIPOC people are like, upset about the way they're being treated and i think it's because that school doesn't have a long history of having people of color attend it you know like when i was there i'm definitely not sure i wasn't the first you know afro latino there or black or anything but i definitely didn't see a lot of things catering to us and then after i left i you know i've heard all these stories where you know, people will say stuff to students out loud or, you know, they even stupid things like trying to touch their hair. And like, you know, it's like, man, we're, we oh, you would Jesus. think at art school you would gone. You now have left all that bullshit behind and now are more open to whatever the world has to offer because it's art school, you know. But, mm-hmm. I, you know, I also am a firm yeah. believer that racism is taught. So people like, you know, they'll learn something and from home and bring it into the school and think it's funny. Um, but you know, there was a lot of question about some of the projects I was working on because they had nothing to do with nothing cool. It had to do with Latinos and, you know, and shooting murals and, and talking about certain people and bringing certain, my stories into it. Um, and I got support from certain people in the oddest places that I could find, you know, like in some of the people that were recruiting for the school or some of the people that were, you know, handling materials. But not from the people that should have got it, you know, like the deans or some of these people that were like there to help us out. Mm-hmm. You know, Everard has always been very supportive. And I think he's the reason why I still had a connection to the school because I was like, yeah, man, like I'll go to him, you know, because I know that he will help me out. Yeah. And he did. A lot of times he came through when I needed him. Um, but he's only one man. You know, the, the school has to provide more than just one person to help you out in these methods. Um, and there was a lot of women uh, instructors there that were very helpful as well but I felt like we were lacking something and now this reckoning and people telling all these stories I'm like man it was there it was always it always has been there and it hasn't changed and I think it's a good school you know like a lot of people complain about it but I took everything I needed to take from that school I made it my mission to get everything all that it was worth and I i I, that's the same lesson that I kind of took away from my own life experiences. I just felt like no one was going to give me anything. You know, as nice as people may may be towards me, um, I was under I wasn't under any illusion that I was responsible for making the most out of it. And I I didn't necessarily feel that I could rely on anyone to really help me if, if it came crunch time. You know. I, I felt that if I all of a sudden I need, I was at a point where I really needed help, um, I wouldn't get it. And maybe that was a mistake on my part, but it was just like that was just the assumption that I had to go by, you know. And because I just I 
I felt like I felt like I was complex in a variety of different ways, and um, many ways that I didn't have not understood until more recently, and I didn't have the sophistication or the awareness to be able to explain exactly what was going on with me, and having to ex having to define myself to someone who didn't get me even on the most basic level did did not encourage me to do so i've been i've been i've taken part in a, a writing workshop called vona which is up in san francisco and it's for people of color and one of the things that i heard over and over and over again was that so many of the writers there and the poets there loved being in a group where they didn't have to explain themselves if themselves justify <laughs> themselves or their work yeah you know and it was just like god damn that is freedom so so important yeah yeah freedom yeah it's just like i can just give voice i can just create and no one's going to question why you're doing this or you yeah know, none of this stuff and um you know that's and when you know when you anticipate that that's going to happen um you end up being a lot more self-sufficient than maybe other people yeah feel the need to be uh, to me and i think that's yeah, kind of what we're talking to about. me it's like you know i i i run in circles where it's a freaking Benetton ad, you know, where everybody's something and something <laughs> else. Um, I have white friends, I have brown friends, I have Asian friends, I have Middle Eastern friends. Like, I want to make sure that I'm surrounded by people that are not this, you know. And it's and it started when I was a kid, you know, when we were, you know, barely teenagers. I remember the group had every color of the spectrum, and we were bad kids, but we were, you know. <laughs> We tried to socialize and get to know each other. And, you know, a lot of the, in the beginning when we started hanging, a lot of the racist comments started to kind of fade away because now we started to understand each other, you know? Um, and the main, the main factor was that we were poor. And that was something that we should put it more attention to than the fact that somebody was black and somebody was Asian and this guy was Japanese and this guy was, you know, Mexican and that guy was that. Um, you know, Indian, and just the fact that, like, look, man, we're all broke, so we're friends, and that we just have to navigate through this <laughs> being broke as kids, which is yeah. funny because I, to this day, I still know all these guys, you know, all all the cultures, and we still kind of talk and hang out and see each other, and and we've we've come a long way, and we're all, you know, doing well. We're none of us are dead or in jail or something horrible, but you know. It's almost like we survived it. And so now we look at all these other things and we want to educate, you know, we want to pursue more things. And as Afro-Latino kids, I, you know, it's hard to, I can't even imagine how it was to, in the seventies being in LA where there was like nothing that represented us, you know, nothing. like now I, I'm, you know, we, we, I can relate to the Latino part and I can relate to, you know, the black part and, I can watch TV and somebody is going to look a little bit like me. And I'm going to be like, yeah. And that was one of the things where like when they came out with that Miles Morales character for the Spider-Man cartoon. Oh, yeah. And oh, he was man. a black kid. And then without even explaining it to anybody, his mom said something to him in Spanish. Oh, man. I was like, oh, <laughs> and I had no idea because I had, you know, I'm a nerd and I love comic books, but I didn't know anything about this Mount Morales kid. And so when I saw the movie and I saw this kid, you know, had hair like me, but he was obviously more black than I was. 
And then his mom said something about something, something, mijo. I was like, oh, what? Yeah. It took me back. I'm like, oh, that was me. I was that nappy head kid running out. And my mom said, don't forget to do this thing, mijo. And yeah. I'm like, oh, dang. And so it, it, it feels like vindication in a way. We're like, now I'm watching things that vindicate my, like, you know, that, that give me a little pride. Like, it's just like, that's my existence. Like, I had to be in the shadows for a while, you know. I had a friend who told me a story about she had to, like, tell people she was from Mexico because they didn't understand where Honduras was at or, like, you know, her, her native country in Central America. And, like, sometimes she would just not say anything because she felt a little awkward about it. So to me to see that, it was like, ah, oh, finally, you know. Miles Morales. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I can understand how people get tired of having to define themselves and explain themselves yeah. to other people. You know, and I, you know, now I just, uh, you know, I don't give a, I don't give a crap. I think a part of it is just like, you know, you feel defensive as if you're doing something wrong. And I had to come to terms that I'm not, I'm not doing anything yeah. wrong. It's just me, you know? And it's like, I'll just explain it. And if they don't get yeah. it, they don't get it. You're the awkward one. You know, and I can move on. And I, yeah absolutely you're the one with the you know with the yeah. issue you know i don't and why do i need to uh, uh, you know i i don't need to compromise myself in order to make you feel comfortable when you're not even making the effort to do it for mm -hmm. me so that's why i get very dismissive of people who immediately say i'm gonna call you x i'm just like yeah right now later yeah because i feel like anybody who tells me something like that is a person who's really not interested in me at exactly all. so it's just like no you're not yeah <laughs> I mean, not that's, that, that's and I just that's highly it. disrespectful and the conversation yeah. no for sure I I am and, and and I still think about that my friend checking people about her and she wasn't being mean and you know she just this is who I am and that's how you're gonna call me and I just thought I was like yes. oh my god like it was like I was so proud in a way we're like <laughs> Like it wasn't even my issue, but I was like, yeah, like I'm, I was in the back going like, yeah, <laughs> like it was a rap battle. And I was back there going, yeah, <laughs> because it was just such a poignant moment where it's like, these are our little battles, yeah. man. We have to get our little battles going where it's like, I don't have to tell you where I went to school. If I tell you that I got a degree or whatever, you just, you know, you're going to believe me. Whereas, like, if somebody else who doesn't mm -hmm. look like me came up and told you something, you'd be like, oh, that's right. You know, you know, it's like, I don't have to justify that. Um, and it's okay for me to be like one culture or the other culture. I can be both. You know, I can, yeah. I can accept the blackness. I can accept the brownness. I can be both. It's all right. Like, there's so many heroes. And this is one of the reasons why I contacted you, because I know you know. And it, you kind of hit me up to uh, Juli Alvarez and Arturo Alfonso. Uh, yeah. Uh, Schmomberg, right? How do you say his last? Schmomberg, yeah. Schmomberg, yeah. Um, and it's always great to see like how Afro Latinos have sort of, in history, have sort of just kind of swam along and done their poignant things and still been there. And so, you know, I love that there's so many uh, Afro Latinos and Latinas who have done things in history that people kind of ignored, you know, and so didn't know that. And I. I want to one day just kind of bring out all this history of these, you know, hidden characters that have always been here, but, you know, for some reason were ignored. Yeah, because I, I was completely unaware of him. I think the first book I ever read that spoke to me was Juno Diaz's Drown, mm. which is a collection of short stories. And everyone probably now knows Juno, um, really famous Dominican, contemporary Dominican writer. 
And he was the first one where I was reading, you know, Spanglish, and I was reading all these things that I'd grown up with, you know, in in my household. And then I got turned on to, you know, Julia Alvarez and and um, um, Michael Datcher, who wrote a book a book about uh, growing up in the, in in the 80s here in Los Angeles. And it was these books were like they were my experience, and it was so exciting to see myself in works of art and I, I just can't and you know it's sad that it was you know it didn't happen during my youth you know that it just started happening you know after I graduated high school and all of a sudden I was being turned on to this stuff and I should have been turned on to this stuff when I was yeah. six you know and I can only hope that kids that are coming up today don't have to wait as long as I did you know, and if their entree is into the Spider Verse, yeah. yeah, then good, good, and they can find out yeah. other things that are out there because of wealth of stuff, and you know, and what you're doing here with the podcast is great, yeah. you know, because I know there are a lot of Afro Latinos out there. There are probably a handful, but not maybe one or two other podcasts, you know, that folk that even bring up Afro Latinos. Yeah, I feel like I feel like there's. If at all, there's mention of it and there's things of it, but I don't think there's anything pushing on it. And, you know, this is, you know, when I started this, I just wanted to educate not just myself, but like other people that the fact that like Latinos were not, and, and brown people and Mexican and South American and Central America, we're not all the same. And, and we have to also include the islands, you yeah. know, and there's islands, there's Belize, you know, there's a country in South America, and I, it escapes my, 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 you know, like right on my mind, the name of the country, but it's mainly Indian from India, immigrants that went down there, mm. and there's Indian Latinos. Uh, there's a town in Mexico that's full of African black people that just migrated and live in that town. Right. Because they're experts at cultivating stones, and they got brought over there, and now there's this whole community of African Mexicans that are just living there and they're just like flourishing yeah, and Chinese in Brazil, Chinese in Brazil, Chinese in Peru. You know, it's like, you know, it's, yeah. it's like, mm -hmm. I want people to know that all Brown people are not the same and that we have different narratives and that we have different customs and that we're educated. We're smart. We have poets, we have singers, we have, people that have brought art into the community, people that have brought things to science and, you know, literature and, you know, and you may not know it, but they're there. And, you know, being a, a biracial person, being a multicultural person, it's a beautiful thing. You know, it's the future. Yeah, Absolutely. it's the future. And I think that, you know, for other Afro-Latinos who, who don't hear their voices or hear their stories, this is a really just a wonderful, wonderful affirming yeah. thing. You know, to hear to hear someone else like just you and I talking and having even though we're from different generations, we both have mutual points yeah, of experience. Definitely. And we go, yep, <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, because when you started talking about code switching, I was like, dang, like I'm, I don't know a lot of my friends that were brown when I was growing up had to. You know, I know a handful of them, but not everybody had to code switch. They just. They didn't have to live in that world. And I, I had to code switch quick yeah. or else, you know, I was out of place even more than the fact of my skin, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I had to be like, oh, yeah, I know about this. And like, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of times people would be like, 
you're from South Central? Like they were waiting for an accent or a or, or like a moniker, like a thug kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Or like a style. And I was like, nah, man, I don't, you know, this is not how I am. And I know that when I'm with my friends, I can just be that person too. And it's not being fake. It's just, yeah. I know, I know how to be in the different places that are in my life. You know, exactly. going back to, you know, 65th and Normandy, I can't be talking in a certain way where people are like, wait, are you, you think you're smarter than me? <laughs> Like, oh, you're off. Yeah, of 65th I was on 65th of Normandy? of Normandy. Yeah, I was. 65th oh, nice. Big. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was like four blocks away from Florence where the riots started. That was that's how I grew up. I grew up in that hood, you know, and it was crazy. I know exactly yeah, what you. It was speak. a crazy place to grow up. I also grew up in Midtown and Koreatown, so like, I we moved a lot. So I grew up in different neighborhoods, but I was in South Central for a, for a hot minute from like junior high, past high school. And it was crazy living down there, you know, because it went from like a black neighborhood and then there was a black and Latino neighborhood to being very predominantly Latino with a few. I don't yeah. South Central shifted really quick. You know, it was kind of like Inglewood where it was a white neighborhood. Then it became a black neighborhood. Then now white people are moving back into Inglewood. Yeah. Going so it's back. like yeah. and black people are like, oh, no, you know, all we need is a, you know, a <laughs> cupcake store. We're. We're gonna get gentrified, and the guy, <laughs> and the guy said that at, in the podcast, and then the reporter was like, "Oh no, there is a, uh, there is a cupcake store." He's like, "Oh damn!" He's like, "I'm, I'm getting kicked out. Yeah, it's over. <laughs> I'm getting kicked out." <laughs> so you know, it's funny too because it's like, I, I now live in a neighborhood that was predominantly Mexican, where you know it was hard to be a black person to here, in Highland Park. You know, you're black. You got to be out of here by. You know, nighttime. Yeah. You're done. And now it's being, you know, converted into a different kind of neighborhood. It, you know, there's, we have our racism here and we have other stuff, but I see a, a lot of cultures, but I want to see more black people move into the neighborhood because then we can start stabilizing this neighborhood a little bit better. You know, we need to have an equal representation yeah. of everybody everywhere. And I, and I think a lot of people get all like, oh, social justice warriors, you know, you guys are ruining everything. And it's like, no, man, this is the way it was supposed to be from the beginning. There was no right. racial hierarchy. We were all just coming into a country that we trespass on. Well, some of us didn't because some of us, our lineage has been here in California longer than the mm -hmm. lineage in, in the East Coast and the Midwest. But Native Americans are the only ones that should tell us to get the fuck out. They're the only ones that get to tell us to leave. Yeah. You know? And last year I was reading about the history of segregation in Los Angeles, man, and that's a wake-up call. Yeah. And when you finally understand why neighborhoods are the yep. way they are, it's like, man, that is systematic, that is planned, that is not paranoia. Yep. You know, that's not me being psychotic. I go, no, man. That's... The reason why people are in certain neighborhoods in L.A., you know, they pushed, yeah. they pushed out the Jewish community all the way to Boyle Heights, and then the Jewish community found another place to go, so they pushed the Mexicans into Boyle Heights. You know, we we destroyed a whole neighborhood to build Dodger Stadium. You know, that all these things, like, to me, they're things that my family was talking about when I was a kid. And now I'm like, man, it's like history repeating itself again. We're pushing people out, pushing people there, yeah. pushing people here. Yeah, Jefferson was like the dividing line. Anything south of Jefferson was supposed to be white only. And um, the, first, the first family that ended up buying a house, black family that bought a house, um, 
they were just pressured and pressured and eventually the police arrested them. I forget exactly why they arrested them, but they arrested them um, and put them in jail. People don't, you know, they think, no, things are better now and things are this. And it's like, no, man, this has been happening for a long time. And so if things happen now, it's because we haven't done anything to stop it. You know, there was a whole black community in the middle of Central Park that flourished. Yeah. They were educated. They were getting college degrees. They were married. They were even interracial marriages that were happening in that community. They were, you know, people that were a little bit better off. They had businesses and somehow they made it illegal for people to live there because they were going to do some city planning and it was all for Central Park. And it's crazy because they found logs and everything about people with degrees, people that were married to this person and that person. And some of them were married to people that went back all the way to the settlers of New York. So they had a right to be there, but they were being pushed around. And so I'm sure that L.A., just from knowing what happened in Inglewood and, you know, Culver City, there's a lot of segregation that has happened. And now you know why people were pushed in certain areas. Why are there so many Mexican yeah. people on the east side, you know? Yeah, when you hear about Compton, you know, you think about yeah. NWA and you go, no, that, you know, at one point that was the hotbed yeah. of the Klan. In yeah, I didn't know that. I, I heard that from, from somebody told me, like, they, they couldn't tell me the whole story, but they were like, oh, you know, the clan was in Compton. And I was like, what? And it was just like, the, it was like an yes. eye opener. I was like, what? What do you mean? And they were like, oh, I'll tell you later. And then mm-hmm. they never really told me. But uh, and, and, and the way Compton became black is that when uh, houses finally started getting sold, there was this there was this developer that started selling houses uh, that adjoined. I think it was just. Uh, west, north or northwest of of Compton, and he started selling residence to blacks, right? And then they started going to the people in Compton, going, "Hey, see what's happening close to you. You know, you you better sell because oh. they're coming." And so that's when the white flight started, and so they would go in, they would buy these buy these houses, and then they would resell them to blacks. At higher prices and, and you know at higher higher than you know value at, at and with you know loans that really were not particularly in their favor and all that all that stuff. But that's how it happened. And I think it happens now, even like you know what Bank of America did with the whole recession, where people were just giving these insanely cheap loans, and then when it came time to pay up, people lost their houses, you know, and the banks just took all this money and made millions off of it. Well, we love. Soon after we got married, we left Wells Fargo when we, and this is what, 91, 92, 93, something like that. I read an article about uh, Wells Fargo at the time um, where uh, if you went in and you had the same income as a white family, you were less likely to get as favorable a loan, if a loan at all. And I was like, uh, well, I don't want my money here. And the thing is, that yeah. hasn't changed. Hasn't changed at Wells Fargo. Hasn't changed practically anywhere else. You know that 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 just in terms of the way that their numbers are calculated, that's that's part of the formula that they use. You know, if you put down that you're black or Latino in there, that's yeah. going to get factored it's even in. Even worse. You know, as much as they want to deny yeah. it, but it's just like 
it's just like anything that they've proven that if you go in there, you send an application for a job, you send in a resume, and it has a, a, a Latin or a black sounding name, and then you send the same resume with John Smith or you know or Chuck Woolery or whatever the hell it's going to be, that 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 is going to get picked up before yeah. the others. You know, that's why I don't. I'm, I'm these electronic uh, job searches yeah. things like Monster and all this stuff where people find people. You know, you can submit your resume there, and this automated thing sort of gives these clients and these businesses the, yeah. the best results. I go without that being stripped of any sort of sense of identity in terms of whether it's male or female or what race or name. If it's completely anonymous, then I can completely. You know, put my trust in it, but I don't think any of those services, you know, anonymize their information to the clients at all. And the employees have to be purposeful about it. They can't just be like, you know, because I remember when I went to the bank, and you know, when I told them when they asked why we were leaving Wells Fargo, I told them, and he says, "Well, we're working on it." It's like, well, I don't have time for you to wait for yeah. you guys to get your shit together. The day is now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Money doesn't like say, "Oh, we'll give you a little bit more time." Money's like right now. Money yeah. buys things right now. If I owed them money, they would want it right now. Yeah. Exactly. So it's, you know, and my mom used to sell houses back in, well, I think she still does, but um, she said that to me, she's like, a lot of people go into these loans and believe all these things and they're targeting these people. They're going yeah. after them saying, hey, you're, you're, you're poor and you're Mexican. You know, you should buy this at this and I'm going to give you this great deal for this loan and my mom would always tell them don't like don't do this you know make sure you can pay more so you can get out of debt so you can own this house and then make more money mm -hmm. later and a lot of people would be like no like this seems like a great deal I'm going to go with this person and you know she's like I you know I, I let them go as clients but then they lost their house eventually and it was sad and she didn't never wanted to be part of that so she was like nah I'm going to tell you the truth and you're going to not want me to be your, you know, agent, but at least yeah. I'm not going to be the reason or added reason to why you lost your house. Yeah, I'm so grateful that I had the education and sort of the awareness that I do, because I remember there was some guy that, that came by the house and my brother is his part owner of the of the house. And um, this guy I was going to do some work, I think a roof or something like that. And uh, he got my mom to sign on the paper, but my, my brother had to sign it in order for it to sort of go through. And I looked at it, and I was just like, no, you're not going to sign this. You know, the interest rate for the loan to get to the work was just, like, insane. It was like 23 24%. And I was just like, no, 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 no. And it was like, and that guy kept calling back, and he started threatening. You know, he said, you know, we'll take you to court, blah, blah, blah. And my mom was all nervous. I said, Mom... If, if my brother didn't sign the paper, they've yeah. got nothing. Because they got to get both signatures on there yeah. in order to accept that. You're both owners yeah. of the house. And it was just like, you know, the fact that there are people out there, you know, of any color. Yeah. They're willing to take take advantage, you know, people of color and immigrants and all this other stuff. Because one of the off. biggest factors that I think people are not paying attention to is that there's a huge divide between rich or poor and the rich don't want to get any lower than where they're at. They want to go higher and they can only do it by taking from the poor. And that's biggest factor of what moves everything here in America. A lot of people that were following Trump have this idea that Trump was, you know, going to help them out because they were white. But in reality, he doesn't care about anybody except if they have money and they can help him. He doesn't care about all these poor people. 
He didn't pardon any of them. He pardoned a bunch of rich rappers and a bunch of people with money. <laughs> and most of them were black. <laughs> and the, these guys who went to the White House who committed treason thought, oh, he's going to help us out because you know, we're white, he's white. And he didn't give them any pardons at all. He just went and pardoned these guys who were rappers who gave him money that he needed. Because at the end of the day, money makes a lot of moves. And if money talks, bullshit walks. And when all these companies pulled out of the Republican Party, all these Republicans were like, oh, no, let's get away from Trump. Yeah, it cost them money. It cost them millions of dollars. They pulled out not to support the Republican Party. That's a lot of money. Yeah. And that's, I think, you know, that's uh, why it's really important for, for us as a community to be educated about our history. You know, not just in terms of cultural history, in terms of in you know, what we've been talking about, but also understanding the history of, of oppression, discrimination, you know, economic disparity. Because, you know, this is an old game. Yeah. An old game, you know. So this hustle has been going on for a long time, and it's so important for us to be we have to wake informed up. about it. Not just be woke on our, yeah. our own identity, but woke on the fact that they've been playing these racial games for so long you know the gerrymandering the owning a house the voting rights the redlining you know the voting rights Mm -hmm. the last name thing everything it's been happening for so long they they wanted they were so mad that they couldn't keep slavery that they wanted to do it in other ways they wanted to have people chained up the the jail system you know i'm listening to another podcast too and shout out to louder than a riot it's a, about how the jail system and the rap world collide and how they, all these things that the jail systems have done to sort of keep people from being free because they make money off of these people in jail. It's another economical way to keep slaves working for you for nothing while you can make oh, money yeah. off of them. And even when they get out of jail, they set them up in a way where like, no matter what they do, they can go back to jail easily. Yeah, yeah, after after the end of slavery, that's exactly what was happening mm-hmm. back in the South. You know, they needed labor, so, oh, you stepped Boom. off the curb? Yeah. You know, the way you should have? Yeah. You know, um, the wrong way, you looked at me yeah. the wrong way, taking you to jail, whatever it was, and yeah. It, it has to stop. That's how it all that, that all that craziness yeah. started, and it's persistent. And I think now. this is especially right now that everybody has the internet and has all this ability. I think we need to start educating ourselves on like how racism has changed and taken different forms, but it's still racism. And we need to wake up and be like, no, this this has to change. The way that people are put to jails has to change first of all, and then jails for profit has to change as well. Oh yeah. The okay. when the Civil War happened. Mainly, a lot of the people that were fighting the North were poor white people who didn't have slaves because they couldn't even afford slaves. But they were following the rhetoric of people who had money, who had slaves, who were like, look, they're trying to take away your slaves. And a lot of those people were like, I don't even have one slave, you know, like, but I'll kill and I'll die for you because I think that, you know, race, we have to be white and we have to. So it's, it's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Sounds yeah right. I mean, <laughs> every time that I think black communities have succeeded, they get destroyed. It happened in Tulsa, and it happened in Charleston. 
Yeah. Memphis. It's happened in other yeah. states as well. It yeah. didn't just happen at Tulsa. Tulsa mm-hmm. was just the biggest amount. But it happened oh, in other yeah. places. And I think that, um, you know, there's places there, in 1889 or 1887, we had black congressmen. Yeah, yeah. during Reconstruction. And they got yeah. pushed out of office because, you know, the rich landowners wanted to make moves that they didn't want these black people to be part of and they didn't want to see affluent black people and so you know they came up with an idea they said something about you know they were threatening white women and rallied all these people and they rallied people who were poor farmers who had nothing to like they were not affected by rich black people but they just couldn't see them succeed you'd you're going to lose the privilege yeah. of your whiteness. That's always and what then, they use. Yeah. You may not have anything else, but you have your whiteness. And They're if you want terrorized. These black men are terrorizing your women. And it's like, yeah. it. the thing is that it hasn't changed. It still hasn't changed now. You know, there's a lot of privilege going on. The woman who stole Nancy Pelosi's laptop is out of jail at home arrest. But a, a young man who supposedly and it was never proven supposedly stole the backpack spent three years in jail and the only way he got out was that he committed suicide but he was never convicted yeah they, yeah oh, God, but you're gonna let this woman who not only broke into the white house one crime there but was also part of a sedition and riot that's another crime but then stole property from the u.s government and then tried to sell it to another mm. country to, to the, the russians, russians. And of course, you know, because she drank the Kool-Aid, she was a stupid idiot and people turned her in and uh, she got to go home. Aunt Becky from Full House went to jail for a couple of months because she, you know, did all the stuff and gave her daughter a fake education by paying a bunch of money. And then there's a mother in the Midwest, a black mother who gave the wrong address and went to jail mm-hmm. for years. Yeah. Not just months, years. And all mm-hmm. she did it for was to get her child a better education. Not to give her a fake education where the other girl was like in the polo team or something. And she had never swimmed in her life. You know? And she's an influencer. She's like, well, I'm quitting school because I'm going to become a full-time influencer. These kids don't need that education. You know, they're, they're rich. They can go anywhere. They can get a pretend degree, you know? Yeah. I went to school with some of us at our center where they just, I don't know what they were doing there. They were just, you know, they were, they had money and their parents had money and they just went to school with us. And, you know, I'm sure you had them as students too. They, they cared less about what they had to do there. They were just, they weren't on a mission. They were just like, Oh, I'll do this art school thing. So I can tell people I went to art school. You know, they were the same ones that always tell me like, Oh, come to this party. And I'm like, it's Monday. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to no party, man. It's Monday. I, I don't even know if you. I even had time on the weekend. You know, at Art Center on the weekend, I had, I had on the weekend I was working my part time job. You know, I think I was only one of a handful of people that worked while they went to Art Center. You know, and then I got an assistant gig, so then I was working that job too, plus my regular part time. Oh yeah, I remember yeah, that. I was That's assisting right. Frank Ockenfell, and yeah. uh, and I hadn't even graduated yet. And these guys were like, ah, no, take a week off, man. Like, let's just go to like Vegas for a week. And I'm like, I don't, I don't even have that kind of money. Like, how do you go to an art school, pay this much money and just be like, I'm gonna take a week off. 
Like that's what the break is. <laughs> that's what yeah. break is. You can take all the weeks you want in your break to go to Vegas. Like this is dumb. This is too expensive to be messing around here. You know, you know, I had a couple bucks that I can get some rice and some meat on top of it during lunchtime. And these guys are like, yeah, <laughs> oh, you got some I, meat, huh? hey, I made friends with the people at the cafeteria. Okay. For a cup, for $2, they put a little bit of meat on top, <laughs> up top of the rice. So I was able to eat a little bit, you know, but I remember that. I remember like being broke at Art Center, just like, oh man, I got to hustle. I just got to hustle, you know, and that's how I learned product photography. I started shooting products that the kids from like the product design department were doing. And I, yeah. you know, I was able to make some money off of that. And I was able to have more meat on my rice. So there you go. See, <sighs> and a drink. So it made, it made it better. Yeah, but it's I don't know. It makes you it makes you stronger. You got to hustle. But knowing your history about all this shit that's happened will help us figure out what we're going to do in the future. Absolutely. And passing, yeah, it, passing on. it on, doing that stuff. Yeah. You know, because that's where I think the biggest responsibility you know that we have is being able to pass it on and that's one of the things i like about the podcast because i can have any anybody on and it's mine you know that sometimes i hear about people who i know might not get any exposure otherwise it's yeah. like coming on my show perfect talk about it you know and i love that it's like i don't have no. to answer to yeah, you have no boss and you can do it anytime anywhere with the little tools that you have nowadays i, mean, I love technology and i always tell people like if you're not doing something it's because you're lazy because YouTube can teach you how to make anything happen. Anything. Yeah. There's some 12-year-old that'll tell you There's how to a, do anything. And if the 12-year-old can figure yeah. it out, you'll I know, I know mothers that brought their 6-year-old kids, or, I mean, 9-year-old kids to where I was working, and they wanted to do uh, videos online of making these goops out of, like, you know, rubber and glue or whatever. And I sold yeah. them a camera and everything, and then... She came back and she's like, oh, I need something better. And I was like, already? It's like only been six months. She's like, oh, he's got a million followers. I was like, what? (laughs) So if this kid has a million followers (laughs) and is making money off of YouTube, you cannot tell me that you cannot figure out how to do this for yourself. So it's like, you know, I love podcasts because I feel like people can just be able to like expose things and talk about things that nobody else is talking about. Like I want people to know, I want everybody, white people, Asian people, people that are not Latino, Latinos, other Latinos. I want them to know what it is to be a Latino, what it is to be an Afro Latino. Some of them haven't even heard of that. You know, what it is to be a woman in education or a woman photographer or, or a person who does this kind of art. And so I interview all kinds of different people that I know that I find interesting because I feel like you would you wouldn't know who they really are unless you had to talk to them and so i have a big mouth and i like to talk so boom there we go that's all you need that <laughs> in the mic. mic and i got two mics so i'm ahead of the game uh about your next where can they find you where they where you're at okay they can find me at uh thecandidframe.com everything's there the the, the podcast the photography the, the teaching books? The, the books are there, there. Books. All, and what's next there. for you? What What are you working on? Getting through COVID. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's it. Getting through COVID. And then I'll probably be teaching. I, I teach workshops. Um, right now I'm doing them online, but I do uh, location workshops. So uh, I'm going to be doing my second workshop in Japan at the end of the year uh, in December. 
and I'll probably, and I'm doing a workshop with the, the Momento Photographic okay. Workshops, which is a documentary, uh, people photography? in documentary okay. photography. Uh, and that that's pretty much it, man. Otherwise, I'm just like waiting to see when these things start getting to normal so that I can actually yeah, start yeah, making yeah, plans. Yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. I, I, I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit happy that it's, that I've had this time at home, but I feel like now it's about time that I want to get out there, do some stuff, you know? Yeah. yeah. I look forward to catching yeah, you in definitely. the real world. Definitely. Thank you for being on. And um, you guys know where to find them uh, candidframe.com. Absolutely. And yeah, uh, see you next time. Thanks a lot for being here. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Also, follow us on Instagram. Leave a like, leave a comment, tell a friend, share our stories. Remember, if you don't see color, you don't see beauty.